0: This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors in the financial
1: industry. The time for empty talk is over. The ECB is ready to do whatever it takes. Because Brexit means Brexit.
0: Outer Blue by Amundi. Since the great financial crisis, macroeconomic policy has been dominated by monetary policy. However, the macroeconomic picture looks very different since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, with fiscal policy resuming a central role. To discuss this topic, I'm pleased to welcome celebrated economists known worldwide for his work on market bubbles and expertise on labour markets, Olivier Blanchard, senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and joining him for a conversation is Pascal Blanquier, chairman of the Amundi Institute. Gentlemen. morning to all. Morning uh, Olivier. So Olivier, uh, you are a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute, prominent uh, think tank, professor at MIT, founding editor of the American uh, Economic Journal, a French citizen with a strong U.S. DNA, uh, having spent spent most of your professional life in the U.S., and uh, an academic close to practitioners, a practitioner yourself as chief economist of the IMF. Uh, some time ago. Uh, your research areas are numerous bubbles, GFC, labor market, employment, inequality. But you are a leading voice uh, on the uh, rethinking of fiscal policy. You have, uh, by the way, a forthcoming book, Fiscal Policy Under Low Interest Rates. And uh, obviously, it's a timely, fiscal, um, timely uh, topic as fiscal policy has shifted to the center of macro policy. Olivier is not. A MMT proponent, modern monetary uh, theory. There is no fiscal free lunch uh, for him. Still, he is well identified as uh, advocating the existence of a fiscal space that could be used without deteriorating too much debt sustainability as long as actual and neutral interest rates stay low, or interest rate is inferior to G, growth and primary balances to debt servicing ratios are manageable. Needless to say, Olivier, this proposition has come under challenges. Debt is high. Inflation and rates supposed to stay low forever are uh-huh. hot. There are bubbles around in asset prices, threatening or deviating from fundamentals, the famous uh, sunspot equilibria. Monetary policy has run its course. And our societies are faced with obvious critical needs to invest, renewing tangible physical capital and adding new capital in relation to a new set of common goods, in relation to uh, energy transition, social uh, topics, uh, but also um, strategic autonomies, in particular in Europe. On top of this, there is no one size fits all in this uh, fragmented puzzle of uh, interest rates and debt uh, trajectories. There are trade-offs, and there is arguably some price to pay uh, for fiscal uh, action. So let's start actually with the policy mix uh, challenges. To put it very simply, investors uh, sitting in the, with us today, you are faced with what I call the end of the great coincidence a cooperative, accommodative policy mix in a context of crisis, low inflation, low rates. Monetary policies, monetary policies have turned the corner, and the, big, the bulk of the fiscal boost is behind us. So for investors, for you, the question is what will happen to the articulation, the combination of monetary policy and budgetary policies, cooperative or not? At both ends of the spectrum, you've got two scenarios. Uh, to put it very simply, full normalization of monetary policy with no additional fiscal stimulus, not to mention consolidation. On the other end of the spectrum, cooperative-accommodative mix in a 70s type of style. In between, you got various degrees of uh, combination. So Olivier, where do you see the, the major policy challenges, the evolution of the policy mix? And in particular, is it realistic to distinguish short-term, long-term basically saying short-term we fix inflation and long-term we address uh, basically the uh, common goods uh, I've, ma- I've mentioned.
1: Well, first, thank you for inviting me. I think it is essential indeed to separate between the short run and the longer run. Uh, I wrote the book because over the last 35 years there has been a steady decrease in real interest rates interest rates adjusted for inflation and this has been a very steady decline and it has been a very wide decline it has happened first in Japan and then uh, in Europe and the US and I looked into it and I concluded that the factors behind this were not one off. There were deep factors which basically led to Uh, large saving and insufficient investment, which would justify low uh, rates. So I wrote the book on the assumption that looking forward, these deep factors would not turn around and we would probably be, on average, in a world of very low interest rates. Now, I'm clearly faced with an obvious question, which is, well, your book may be a nice history book, but uh, is it more? And I think that's why it's very important to understand, at least to understand the inflation part of the story, which is that for various reasons, uh, partly actually the misuse of fiscal policy in the US, um, the world is now exposed to higher inflation, and the central banks are not going to let it happen. And so for a while, it's obvious that nominal interest rates and real interest rates are going to be higher I think they are going to be substantially higher in the US and possibly less so uh, in, in Europe. So I think we're going, what we're going to see is what I think of as a bump for the next two or three years. The behavior of interest rates is going to be determined much more, not by these deep factors, but by the need for central banks to actually slow the machine and get inflation under control. So my way of thinking about the future, which is what investors matter, uh, care about, is that we're going to have a bump, we're going to have higher real interest rates for some time, and then I think the deep factors which were there before are still going to reappear. So if you ask me where we are in five or 10 years, I think we're li- still likely to be in a world of low real interest rates uh, with the implications which uh, we can discuss. What about nominal rates? I have a sense that uh, central banks will want to go back to low inflation, where they want to go back to 2%, as they wanted before. Or when we come down, well, they want to stop at 3%, say, is a possibility. But the implication of this is we'll have low real interest rates, relatively low inflation, therefore relatively low nominal rates. And so I think that what we've seen in the past, which is the limits on monetary policy to actually decrease rates when it needs to, will come back. So we're in a transition phase, but my best guess is we we'll return to something in terms of interest rates, something like what we had before the COVID crisis. So not a permanent change, just
0: And on the articulation of fiscal policy and monetary policy moving forward?
1: Well, there are various issues here. I mean, clearly what we saw before the COVID crisis uh, was that when the interest rate, the nominal interest rate is equal to zero or a bit negative, then monetary policy cannot do anything. And therefore, fiscal policy has to do the job if the economy needs to be sustained. So we may return to something maybe not that extreme, but it's clear that fiscal policy, if the rates in the future after the bump go back to low levels, then the room for monetary policy to act will remain small and fiscal policy will have to play more of a role. Now, the other thing to say is that in the short run, the fight against inflation by the central banks will probably lead to higher interest rates. And I don't think they are going to be gigantic, but positive real rates. So that for a while, financing uh, the deficit will be, or financing the debt service, uh, will, will be a bit tougher. If I'm right that this is more a bump than a permanent state, that's something that states can afford. So in this context, uh, if, for example, we need to help people who drive a lot Suffer less from the increase in gas prices, and we think it would be good to give them subsidies or transfers. I think that's something we can afford to do. Uh, it will, you know, slow down the decrease in debt, but not not be uh, not be catastrophic. Turning now to
0: inflation and monetary policy, uh, there there are at least four elements, uh, right or wrong, uh, keeping uh, you investors uh, awake at night. One what I call the uh, end of the great monetary consensus. You used to uh, live with a very comfortable uh, world with a a model of uh, independent central banks, one tool, one objective, to put it very simply, now we are discovering a fragmented Uh, picture of uh, reaction functions uh, and real uh, rates. This is the end probably of the great period of co-integration of uh, markets, or uh, strong correlation of cross-country returns, or co-movement in global risk. Number two, the sense that the DNA, uh, right or wrong, of central banks has changed. There are various talks, uh, and not only talks about uh, fiscal dominance, uh, financial repression, uh, an asymmetric approach between uh, growth and inflation, between asset prices and traditional inflation. Number three, uh, the idea that they have fallen behind the curve, uh, maybe not by not by chance nor by mistake. Actually, by downplaying or denying the monetary origin of the uh, of today's inflation, they didn't put themselves uh, in the best situation. Uh, to take now a Volckerian t- type of uh, uh, stance. And number four, uh, this, uh, this idea that monetary policies and rates uh, have not just reflected fundamentals. Uh, there are other factors, the role of the uh, Asian Chinese platform fueling uh, disinflation in the West, driving the cost of capital and rates uh, down. It has lasted 35 years or so, but Actually, it's now being uh, 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 reversed. So, uh, Olivier, how do you see the the current dynamics of inflation? Uh, and was it really fundamentals, these mysterious fundamentals that were driving rates down, or some just some coincidence of uh, globalization
1: 1.0? So there were a lot of questions in your questions, and I, I hope I have not forgotten them. The um, The first one is on fiscal dominance, which you mentioned. Uh, You can see the tension, which is that if uh, central banks have to increase interest rates, this will increase debt service. If I'm right, it will not last for very long, but it's still something that governments don't don't like. Is there any risk of fiscal dominance, I think, for the major countries? No. The ECB has 19 masters. It is highly unlikely that they would agree uh, to bunch on the uh, on the ecb so i think the ecb has independence and will do whatever it takes to actually get to uh, to low inflation in the us i think there is more reason to worry i think under the existing chairmanship there is no reason to worry i'm absolutely sure that j paul is totally committed to doing the right thing even if it needs even if it leads to high rates and joe biden has indicated that it's uh, J. Paul's responsibility, not Joe Biden's. So I, I don't think that uh, fiscal dominance is an issue. There's fi- financial dominance that you did not mention, uh, the worry that by increasing rates, you're going to decrease asset valuations. I think that central banks see this as part of a process of adjustment. Uh, as long as it doesn't need to pronounce with balance sheets, which it doesn't seem to at this point, uh, I think they'll do it as well. On... On the other issues, uh, my trip policy of the future, the many instruments, I think that was one of your questions. I think that we have to rethink QE and balance sheet operations. Uh, We introduced them uh, when we basically got to the zero lower bound and had to find ways. We still don't quite know how they work. And they are a very complex instrument. We don't exactly understand what it does to the yield curve and, in turn, what the yield curve does to the economy. Uh, I think my own preference would be to get rid of them over time and return to a world in which the uh, micro authority has basically one tool, which is the short rate, and then let the yield curve do its job. With one exception, uh, which is that liquidity provision is clearly something which can be important. We saw it in the Euro crisis. And for example, for a bank like the ECB, although I would like them to decrease their balance sheet in general, I want them to be able to actually intervene when markets become dysfunctional. For example, when investors decide that Italy is no good and ask for a high spread. I think this will remain a central function, especially for the ECB. Um, So I think we have to rethink uh, what the role of the policy and the instruments of Mitri policy are. Um, I think I've answered three of your questions, or maybe two and a half. Uh, you're welcome to come back and, uh, and ask what I've, not, what I've not answered.
0: Okay, um, moving to the, the, the famous fiscal space, actually. Uh, uh, is there a space at all for all? Uh, is it a free lunch? Uh, there are big assumptions behind this uh, fiscal space uh, uh, thing. Uh, Actually, neutral safe rates would uh, would stay low uh, uh, on fundamentals for uh, in the future. Uh, there would be a global, safe, real interest rates, but in reality, we are seeing uh, more and more fragmentation of uh, this uh, this picture, which is a limitation to the uh, the notion of of, uh, fiscal space or or policy recommendation. And last but not least, actually, there are bubbles around. uh, uh, Sunspot, Equilibria, they are all uh, fiscal space killers, potentially uh so uh so o- olivier uh so back to my to my question is there a space uh, at all uh, are we overestimating the space uh, is there a price to pay uh, uh how do you see it
1: so i think that has to be answered country by country uh fiscal space is the question of if you need to, can you increase the deficit for a while for good reasons or are you going to be penalized by markets who are going to think that that is unsustainable? Uh, the answer depends enormously on what we discussed earlier, which is that if we move from the current world of the world we just had to a world in which interest rates, real interest rates are 4%, say, which I think is zero probability, but just conceptually, then clearly if fiscal space is much smaller, that service is much larger. Under my assumption that we're going to have a few years of higher rates and then go back to reasonably low rates, then I think when you sit down and look at that dynamics, there's fiscal space, most countries can, if needed, not just do it just for the sake of it or for the pleasure of it, but if needed, they can actually have a larger deficit for some time and not uh, be on a exploding debt trajectory. But that has to be assessed that goes back to kind of a design of uh, European Union rules. This, can, this has to be assessed the way rating agencies do it, which is to look at all the elements and decide, given the distribution of interest rates in the future, the distribution of growth, given what may happen to the social security system, and so on, you know, what is the probability that that explodes? And my sense is, when you do this computation at this stage, I'm not very worried. and what would you would be uh... to be, to be very concrete at this stage we need probably to spend more to protect some people and maybe some firms from the increase in energy prices we don't want some firms to go bankrupt for no good reason and we don't want people to starve because the price of food has increased so I'm quite sure that the right thing to do is to spend more give them transfers subsidies the question is should we finance it by deficit spending or by taxes I think it To some extent, we could use taxes on the firms which are benefiting from the energy prices, but there are not too many, on exceptional profits. That's not going to be enough to cover the spending. Is it justified in this context to have a small deficit for one or two years? My answer is yes. Uh, uh, Back to, to, to inflation, is there some chance
0: to see inflation retreating on its own, actually, moving forward?
1: That's a decision of central banks. Uh, So just to take an example, so look at inflation in the European Union. It comes mostly from an increase in energy prices. Given that the European Union is an importer of energy, this means that the European Union as a whole has a loss of real income, namely what it needs to pay Russia and others, Right, so as a whole, there's a real income loss. Now, who is going to share the burden? Well, the way it works in practice is the firm's increase prices to reflect the increased price of commodities, of inputs. That's step one. Then if the workers are strong enough, they ask for increases in wages to compensate for the loss of free income, then the firms say, well, you have inc- we have increased wages, we have to increase prices. And if you don't do anything about this, then inflation goes on forever. It's basically a distributional conflict which doesn't resolve itself. Everybody tries to get you know, the next step and the next step and the next step. So it is, to go back to your question, it is, what can happen? The central bank can say, well, that's the way it is, and then just let inflation go. Or it can actually stop inflation by basically tightening monetary policy, slowing the economy down, and forcing firms and workers to accept the loss. So the point of this is central banks are in charge of inflation. They may screw up, and they did. And you know this is where we are. But in general, central banks say over 10 years, have complete control of inflation, no matter what happens to the real economy, no matter what happens to productivity growth, no matter what happens to the price of Chinese goods. They just adjust the rate so as to basically get inflation on target. Now, as we've learned, sometimes they don't succeed, but that's what they try to do. And so whatever you tell me about the future, lower productivity growth, higher productivity growth, China going one way or the other, green uh, investment being bigger, I think in my book has no implication for inflation over the next 10 years or 20 years. Uh, Regarding when I say this, I realize I'm talking like a monetarist, which is in the end. I think inflation is really something that central banks are in charge of. Yeah.
0: And why did they miss the point? Actually, why have they fallen behind the curve?
1: Who has the central banks? Why did they fall behind the curve? It's it's a very interesting story. So again, the current inflation that the US has and has been imported through commodity prices in Europe goes back to the very large fiscal um, packages, first from the Trump administration, but especially from the Biden administration in February of uh, 2021. That's what created the overheating. So the first question is, why didn't the Fed react at that time? I think the Fed just did not realize how big the fiscal package was. And then when they started doing studies of what this implied, uh, in one interview I've said they drank the Kool-Aid They basically convinced themselves that the so-called Phillips curve, which is the relation between activity and inflation, was very, very flat. And we could have overheating for the US economy and not have inflation. They based this on the previous 30 years of data, which was a very quiet times, and therefore not reliable for these times. And so they said, well, we're going to have overheating. That's actually a good thing because it's going to allow some of the marginal workers to reintegrate the workforce, and that's good. Sometime in the middle of 21, I think that uh, Jay Paul, in particular realized that uh, staff had not been right. And since then, he has basically moved in the direction of having tighter and tighter monetary policy. But I think the point is, it's important to understand that he has done this. He could have, on July 2021, we could have said we've completely screwed up, and I now need to increase rates by five percent. Right? If he had done that, I suspect that there would have been a bit of chaos in financial markets. So, his, I think, his constrained optimization for him at this stage is to get where he wants to go, which is get rid of inflation, increase interest rates enough but do it at a rate which is not going to scare markets too much. So I think each FOMC meeting scares market a little more. And he will keep going until he gets what he wants.
0: Thank you, Olivier. Let me conclude with the, the following remarks, I think, for investors, uh, actually, I think that we, uh, uh, to put it very simply, we've got two, two main roads uh, uh, ahead, uh, the road back to the future and the road back to the 70s, to, uh, to, to put it very, uh, very simply. Back to the future means uh, that, after all, fundamentals would be unchanged, uh, and so uh, would be uh, risk premium valuations at equilibrium. With a bit of luck, inflation would retreat on its own, and uh, no policy mistakes would be made. Uh, low rates would uh, sustain high valuations of risky assets at equilibrium. And the recent setbacks, by the way, uh, could be seen as a more compelling buying opportunity than thought. Uh, doesn't preclude uh, diminishing returns moving forward in the future, but uh, less than feared. Uh, This sounds like Goldilocks, but this is the road back to the future. The second school of thought is the road back to the 70s. We would see uh, central banks herring on the benign neglect side of the equation, with stimulative policy mixes, or more stimulative than we think today. We would see authorities buying time and nominal growth, just like in the 70s, and and, uh, inflation would stay high actually, or higher than we think. Nominal rates would uh, creep up, less so real rates, at least uh, in the first sequence. With premium in valuation, this is important. would have to adjust to new equilibria uh, for a more uh, inflationary regime, P's, for example. We should reason looking at the average, for example, of P's between 73 and, 80, and 81. Uh, and this uh, is another reading of the recent setbacks. They are incomplete in this uh, second uh, option. Uh, We are just at the beginning of a global repricing in in that case, and uh, some completion would be uh, achieved when uh, absolute valuations of bonds and equities are restored, Uh, and bonds are uh, clearly more attractive relative to equities. In the meantime, uh, the rotation would be confirmed towards value business models exposed to physical capital accumulation rather than financial capital, so value versus growth and tech typically, uh, and towards what is providing sources of positive real returns and what is uh, positively correlated to inflation. Those are the two uh, ways put it very simply. Needless to say, a full monet- normalization of monetary policy coupled with uh, budgetary consolidation would be probably the worst scenario for uh, the uh, growth
1: environment and for us uh, in the markets. Thank you very much. Can I can I just yeah. put probabilities on your two scenarios? So, uh, 80 to 90 percent on the first, <laughs> and then by implication, 10 to 20 percent on the second. But you should indeed be ready for the second, over we all hope for the first.
0: Thank you, Olivier. You know my inclination for the uh, se- second option. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All to all. This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors as defined in Directive 2004/39/EC dated 21st of April 2004 on markets in financial instruments called MiFID investment services providers and any other professional of the financial industry views are subject to change and should not be relied upon as investment advice on behalf of Amundi.